uh, you will find today's text on page 582, page 582 of the Black Bibles that are provided. I would encourage you to open a copy of the Scriptures and keep it open in front of you. Um, This is all that we have to say this morning, is what God has said, and anything helpful that we say is merely pointing out what God has already said and applying that. So Acts chapter 12 in your Bibles, and uh, we will read the entirety of Acts chapter 12. It is a little longer than our typical um, scripture reading, but it will be helpful to us to get an overview, and then we will ask for God's help once again, and then look at this passage of scripture. Again, page 582, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now it was during the day, excuse me, during the days of unleavened bread. So when they had arrested him, they put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know what was done by the angel, did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, and he has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where there were many gathering, uh, gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to him with his hand, Uh, To keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, "Go go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But then Herod had searched for him and not found him. He examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. 
And having made uh, Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. Lord, help us now as we consider this your word. We are humbled before it, knowing it is the word of the living God, and we have nothing to offer except what you have told us. Help us now in these moments as we consider it. We pray these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. Do things in your life ever not go according to plan? Have you ever been on a trip and you have everything just just timed out just right? And you know that you've got gas in the car and that all the bags are packed and, and you have just enough time to make it from point A to point B and you, and you get in your car and, and no sooner had you made your way a little ways down the road and all of a sudden you hear that, that flapping of the flat tire. Now there's no way... To, to change a tire quickly. I mean, you just can't, especially with those horrible wrenches that they put. You know what I'm talking about? Those ones that are like that cheap pot metal, and, and they stretch. Like you use them one time, and they stretch, and you can't get the bolt to grip on there. I mean, they, it's, like, it's like some engineer somewhere sat in an office and, and came up with a sinister plan on how I can torture people, right? Their, their tire's going to go out, and they're, and they're going to be in a hurry, and they're going to have to change the tire. First of all, they have to dig down in the trunk and get, get into all of that, you know, deep, dark recesses of where the spare tire is kept, get that thing out, and, and try to work with this jack, which those are horrendous. Uh, and, and, you know, that thing goes all the way around and hits the pavement, which, of course, you're always doing this in, like, 90-degree heat, right? And, and, and then you, you know, take it off and put it back. And you're frustrated, and you're in a hurry, and you say, why, why did this have to happen now? Well, life is full of those kind of surprises, isn't it? Life is full of things that, that don't go according to plan. You know, somehow, when we consider walking with Christ, when we consider what it means to serve God. We sometimes get this rosy picture in our mind that we're just going to you know, jump in the car of our spiritual journey and we're just going to zip from point A to point B. And it's going to be a bed of roses, it's going to be wonderful, and, and uh, everything's going to go according to plan, and I'm not going to have any problems because, of course, I'm serving Jesus. I mean, it's the victorious Christian life. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up in the morning and all my hair is going to be in place. I'm not going to have bad breath because I'm just so godly. Right? That's what we think of a godly life as. We, we tend to think that, that you know, the, the godly life is that smooth sailing. If I'm, if I'm serving Jesus, things are supposed to go according to my plan. But then when they don't, we say, what's wrong? Well, Scripture is very clear that, in fact, when things don't go according to plan, When things go even tragically wrong, this is no surprise. This should be, in fact, what we expect. You see, we hear stories about what God has done. 
Right? We think about the book of Acts. What a wonderful book. What, what exciting things are happening in the book of Acts. Well, wonderful that the church is getting started and how well it's going. But if we look closely at the details, what we recognize is the details of the story are fraught with difficulty and heartache. In fact, many of the chapters of the book of Acts are written in blood We are now at the close of chapter 12, which really is the end of of section 1 of the book of Acts. And this, the way this first half of the book of Acts closes, is very telling. In fact, even if you took chapters 1 through 12 and you divided it up, there would, would be two halves to the first half. And the first half ended with a martyrdom. It ended with death. Well, then the second half of the first half, we come to here in chapter 12, and and it ends the same way, with death. The world tells us, you can be anything you want to be. You can... You can be anyone you want to be. As long as you put your mind to it, you can do anything. Or we have these slightly more Christianized versions of it, right? Just snatch a verse out of context from Philippians. And suddenly, (laughs) what? I can do anything because God said so in Philippians. Not not if you read it in context, (laughs) right? You can, you can do anything you put your mind to. It, it'll all be okay. It'll be wonderful. Serving Jesus is going to be all smooth sailing. It's going to all be a bed of roses. But here's what we learn, both from this chapter and from our own Christian experience, that following Christ is not a commitment that guarantees us ease. In fact, it's not even a commitment that guarantees all of our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled. Or that Christian, the Christian life will go just as we had hoped and planned. The reason for that is simple. The Christian life is not about us. Following Christ is not, first and foremost, about you and me. God did, not, God did not save us to maximize our comfort. He saved us to maximize His glory. And what He does in our lives from day to day is also to maximize His own glory. And so, we must disabuse ourselves of this false notion that I can name it and claim it, that that everything will be health and wealth and prosperity if I serve Jesus. Jesus is not our genie in the bottle. We do not obligate God. We do not have a bargaining chip. Look, God, I did this and this and this for you. Therefore, you must bless me in this way. But what we do see very clearly is that God orchestrates all things to accomplish our good and His glory. I want you to go with me to the end of chapter 12. 
because what you're reading here is the conclusion. I would prefer, I would have preferred it if the editors would have put the chapter break after 24, because I really think that's kind of the end of the chapter. Nonetheless, verse 24, one verse from the end of the chapter, notice what it says. But the word of God grew and multiplied. That is the conclusion of of section one of the book of Acts. The word of God was growing and being multiplied. That's the point, not only of this chapter, but really in large part sums up this entire first section. Now, I will tell you, by the way, it was my intent to stop after chapter 12. And we had a leadership meeting this week with uh, pastors and deacons and their wives. And I was told in no uncertain terms, oh, no, no, you're not. (laughs) We're looking forward to the rest of the book of Acts. So I guess I'm going to finish the book of Acts. Um, So we'll be continuing. We'll probably take a, a short break, but then we'll be picking back up in Acts 13 here shortly. Um, So in in the conclusion here of this first section, we see God having used everything all through these first chapters to to glorify himself so that the gospel would go forward. And what what we really learn here is that God providentially works to glorify himself by the advance of his church. Let me say that again. God providentially works to glorify himself by the advance of his church. And that's exactly what's described there in verse 24. Now, Luke uses some some good literary devices to point out what he is driving at in this narrative. And one of the literary devices that he, he uses is framing. So he really kind of, he puts bookends on each end of chapter 12. And you'll notice that the chapter begins in verse 2 with the same thing that it ends with in verse 23. And what is that common theme that actually is repeating a theme that we've seen in the first half? What is it? You tell me. I'm not going to tell you. What is that theme that we've already seen in the book of Acts that gets repeated here, bookends, verses 2 and 23? What do they all have in common? Death. 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 Right? So, so in, the, in the opening verses, James dies. And in the closing verses, a ruler named Herod dies. How is it that God can bring glory to himself? Well, the first way that we tragically see, but in reality see, that God is working is he glorifies himself even in the death of his servants. About that time, verse 1, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Do you remember James and John? Do you remember two sons of thunder? Do you remember a little squabble that they were having with some of the other apostles? Do you remember this, right? They come to Jesus. Actually, they kind of send their mom or 
Their mom brings them to Jesus. And it's this whole, hey, we, we want you to promise that you get to sit on the right and left hand, that they get to sit by your right and left hand in the kingdom. Do you remember Jesus' response? You remember this? You will have to drink the cup that I drink. And they have no idea what he's talking about. Remember this whole, this whole occasion, this exchange? And they said, oh yeah, we're ready. And Jesus prophetically says, what? You will. You will drink this same cup. And they didn't know even an inkling of what he was talking about. But in Acts 12, verse 2, Jesus' prophecy begins to come true. And in fact, these sons of thunder, one of them now becomes the first apostle who was martyred. Now, we've had one martyr prior, but this is the first apostle who was, who was killed. The church, is, the church is on fire. I mean, the church is expanding and it is growing. And right in the midst of all of this, we see James is, is killed. He's executed. World War II bomber pilots had a saying. The flak only gets heavy when you're over the target. Or they would say it this way, if you're not catching flak, you're not over the target. Or you know you're over the target when the flak gets heavy, right? I mean, that's, that's when you start taking fire. The enemy doesn't defend something that's of no value. So, so when the enemy fire is really heavy, that's a good clue <laughs> that you're where you're supposed to be. And so the enemy fire all throughout the book of Acts is crescendoing. And we see that, that James is killed. Wherever we see the gospel advanced, we often see people making sacrifices, even up to and including the ultimate sacrifice for the cause of Christ. During our prayer time this morning, we prayed for our sister church, and we're being recorded, so I'm going to be vague. Um, in a, in a Muslim country where in 2016 the church was raided by the police. 30 of their members were taken to the police station. National television reported that they were arrested for spreading illegal religious doctrine. The pastor and another church leader were assessed fines equivalent to three months' wages, and they were ordered to stop meeting. This is what gospel advance looks like. It looks like a sacrifice. It even sometimes looks like death because this is sometimes how God glorifies Himself, how the gospel advances. And we have a rich heritage to look back to of those that recognized that God's glory and the advance of the gospel was more important even than my own life. Whoever, Jesus said, will save his life will lose it. But whoever gives it for my sake in the gospel, the same will find it. And James found life. 
And although the church undoubtedly mourned him, although they were saddened to see what had happened to James, I dare say James would not have for one moment wanted to come back from the glorious presence where he was. And God even uses this to fuel the energy of the church moving forward. But we see a contrast in this chapter, don't we? We see actually the bulk of the chapter spent in verses 3 through 19 on this this occasion where Peter finds freedom, where he is delivered. And we see that God glorifies himself also sometimes through through the deliverance of his saints. So in verse 5 and following... Peter is, is now, the, Herod the king now moves against Peter. Now that has a lot to do with him trying to gain political favor. We'll get to that in a few moments. But when he sees that what he has done to James uh, was, was successful politically, he was scoring political points, he now proceeds to attack another one of the key leaders of the church, namely Peter. But now, of course, he has a problem. Um, In verse 4, it says they arrested him and they they put him under intense guard. Four groups of four guarding him. So 16 soldiers to guard one guy in a prison. And he can't kill him yet because we're actually right in the midst of Passover. And that would have been very unpopular with the Jews to propagate an execution in the midst of Passover. So he holds him in this holding cell until he is at liberty to execute him, which will come now the next day from the point where we pick the story up while Peter is in prison. But we notice that constant prayer is offered to God for him by the church. And so what I want you to see here is that God is actually using the prayers of his saints to to deliver his servant He sometimes chooses to to deliver through the prayers of his servant. We see it in verse 5. We see it again in verse 12. When Peter makes his way out of the prison, he considered this. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So this is John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, his mother's house. Apparently they were well off, uh, had a large house where where the church could meet and pray. They were gathered there, the last part of verse 12, praying. My friends, it is very common for us to forget how important it is that we seek God's face. That we as a church pray for Him to work on our behalf because God uses those prayers to further His ends. F.B. Meyer, the famous preacher, was crossing the Atlantic and he was, he was, um, he was asked to come and speak to the first class Passengers, many of whom rejected and, and scoffed uh, what he had to say. One of them in particular um, was an agnostic who was present in the service and just out of curiosity went to hear Dr. Myers preach. And he said afterwards, I didn't believe a word of it. Later that day, Myers also preached to the fourth class cabin. And the agnostic, again, wanted to hear him. And on the way, he had, he had a couple of oranges in his pocket. He was making his way down the deck, and he saw this, this poor old woman who had fallen asleep 
with, with her hands resting in front of her, cupped open, and trying to be funny, trying to be cute. He took one of those oranges out, and he set it in her hands, and he went on to hear Brother Myers, and he came back that same way, and he saw this woman just scarfing down this orange, and he said, you seem to be very much enjoying your orange, to which she responded, yes, my father is very good to me. He didn't understand. He said, your father, surely... Surely your father's dead. What do you mean? She said, I was sitting here praying. I've been seasick for days, and I was praying that God would give me an orange. And I must have fallen asleep while I was praying. And when I awoke, I had an orange. Well, obviously that made quite the impact on the agnostic who was speechless at God's specific answer to prayer. And he was later converted. God uses the prayers of his people. When God's people pray, God works. Hudson Taylor said it this way, When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And that reminds us of a couple things. It reminds us that that Prayer is the greatest weapon of God's children. Ask, seek, knock. It also reminds us that God is on the throne of the universe. He is the sovereign. We are not. He is the potter. We are the clay. And it is a privilege to be used by the Master, even in our prayers. We see here sometimes, too, that God delivers even through the prayers of his people, but he does so in a way that is for his own purpose. I, I want you to actually notice very carefully what leads up to this deliverance. I mean, this deliverance must be a great credit to Peter's faith, right? I mean, what do we see in verse 6? We see Peter standing in the prison with his, with his hands stretched to heaven, right? And he's, he's praying something like this. He's praying, Lord, I just right now... I am proclaiming in the name of Jesus. I am declaring victory over this situation. I'm just, I'm just proclaiming right now deliverance from this bondage. In fact, I rebuke the demons of captivity. I'm just speaking these words in faith and I'm unleashing God's blessing upon my life. Right? That's all in verse 6, right? What, that's not in your Bible? But that's what the prosperity preachers are telling us. Right? If we'll, just, if we'll just declare words of victory over this situation, God's on a string and He'll do what you tell Him. That's the implication. What's Peter doing? He's sleeping. I mean, you know, when the angel comes in, he's not standing there with shoes in hand going... Well, it's about time you got here. Like, I've been expecting this. Like, there's no... Now, Peter is being faithful. That's how he's able to sleep, right? I mean, try telling you you're going to die the next day. Now, get a good night's sleep, right? Peter's, Peter's at rest. He knows God's in control. But what he's not doing is he's not, you know, speaking words of victory over the situation and making it happen like he wants to. Oh, you say, well... 
Maybe it's not Peter's faith. Maybe it's the, the faith of those that are praying. The, the church. What happens when Peter shows up at the door? Knock, 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 knock. Here comes Rhoda. It's her job to, keep, to be the doorkeeper. They've got an, you know, an inner gate and an outer gate. and She hears Peter out there, and she's so excited, she runs back in and says, Hey, Peter's standing at the gate. And they're like, You're crazy. Right? That's what they say. You're beside yourself. You're crazy. No, no, really, I insist. Well, maybe it's his angel. In those days, many of the Jews believed that there was a guardian angel that could actually take on the form of that person. Well, you're crazy. Come back and pray for Peter. Like, he's not outside. Come back and pray for him. I mean, do you see the humor in this? This is not what they're expecting either. There's no great, you know, we, we exercised faith and, and we declared victory and, and, and boom, God did it. Now, what are they praying for? Well, we don't really know. Maybe they're praying for Peter's strength. Maybe they're praying for his testimony. Maybe they're, they're praying that the, that the gospel goes forward because of Peter's death like it did because of James's. Maybe there's a few people that are just brave enough to pray that God delivers him. But this is not what they're expecting. My friends, when God answers our prayer, it is no great credit to us that God answered our prayer. And I fear what sometimes that we do is we, is we make it such that, you know, we, God has to do what we tell him to. No, if, if God always did what I prayed, a couple, one of a couple things would have to be true. First of all, I'd have to always be right in my prayer. Or number two, sometimes God would have to do the wrong thing. Well, God doesn't ever do the wrong thing. And I got news for you. I'm not always right in what I prayed for. Oh, well, I am, Pastor. Well, good for you. All right. But some of us, sometimes we pray for the wrong thing. And God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, knows best. And keep in mind, by the way, Peter still eventually died as a martyr. So this deliverance was for a time because God still had work for him to do. This is kind of that, that you know, you can't kill me until God says so. And isn't that a wonderful and comforting place to be? Now, make no mistake. We should pray earnestly, we should pray diligently, we should pray for God's intervention, but in the end, we have to approach our prayer with submission to a sovereign God who will always do what is right. And so this chapter really demonstrates God's sovereign, providential control over all of human life. You know, we think of providence, right? We talk about God's providence. We tend to think about providence as when things go well. Things fall in place. They line up like, like in a way that we never could have orchestrated, and we'd say, oh, well, that was providential. A, a, a near miss and a car accident, you know, another 10 seconds further down the road or another 10 seconds later down the road, and we would have been in that tragic accident. Well, that was providential. What about when we get in the accident and we're hurt 
and we're in the hospital for three weeks. Do we say, oh, well, that was providential. Guess what? It was. It is. God orchestrates all things to his glory and our good, and even when things don't go as we would like them to. Even when the word is, James is dead. So James, the faithful apostle, is killed by an evil ruler. That's in the will of God. Peter, a faithful apostle, is delivered against all odds. That, too, is in the will of God. And none of us should ask, God, why are you doing it that way? In his infinite wisdom, he knows the answer. We can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. We don't always know what God is up to. We don't know what he's up to as a church. Situations may be difficult. Situations may be easy. Uh, the ministry here in, as part of our local church may be, may be good at times and go through seasons where it's difficult at times. But as we continue to move forward and we serve God, we have to understand that God is advancing the gospel and his church even though it may not always look exactly like we want to. I wonder this morning, what's the news that you've gotten this week, this month, or this year? Is it that James is dead? Or is it that Peter is delivered? Because sometimes the news that we get is difficult, and it is harsh. It is not the news that we wanted to hear. And in our minds, we scramble to try to figure out what, what must God be up to? And we can't. We can't figure it out. In times like that, my brothers and sisters, we simply have to look to a sovereign God who's orchestrating all things to the counsel of His will and does what is right not to magnify our comfort but to magnify His glory. And so whether it's a diagnosis that is difficult to hear, whether it is a financial calamity that has befallen you, whether it is a tragedy in your family, whatever it is, may we recognize that God is glorifying himself. God providentially works to glorify himself in the advance of his people, of his church, of believers. We see one final way in which God glorifies himself in this passage, and that is God glorifying himself in the demise of his enemies. We see this in verses 20 through 25. So Herod, here, um, right, there's this embarrassing situation with Peter, just in the previous verses. And so what he does is he retreats. He escapes to Caesarea, and that's where the rest of this story takes place. Now let me kind of quickly explain to you, there were five different people in the Bible with the name Herod, so it can be a little bit confusing. This is Herod. Um, this Herod was Herod Agrippa I. There were actually two Herod Agrippas also. He had a son named Herod Agrippa. This is Herod Agrippa I, so this would be the grandson of Herod the Great, you will remember from the story of Jesus. He is the ruler of Judea and Samaria, and he, he reveled he reveled in keeping an image before the Jews of himself as a good 
a good Jew because he loved the accolades of the Jewish people. He was a supporter of the Pharisees. And remember, this is exactly why he is going to kill Peter when he has the opportunity to do so, is to gain favor with the Jews. Well, he retreats, and in verse 21, we see this episode that is the final episode of Herod's life. On a set day, Herod, arrayed in a royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Historians tell us that he was in some sort of a a, a robe that was actually interwoven with silver and reflected the sunlight. It was something very, very ostentatious. And he comes out in these royal robes and he gives this eloquent speech. And in verse 22, the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And any decent person with a half a dose of humility would have said, oh, no, no, no. But what does he do? He, he heaps the glory on himself. He did, verse 23, he did not give God the glory. Angel of the Lord struck him. He was eaten by worms and died. Josephus, the historian, describes Herod as collapsing in the middle of the theater. He's then taken back to the palace where he suffers grotesquely for five days, and dies. Verse 24, But the word of the Lord was growing and being multiplied. Herod perishes. Now praise God that he does not strike every blasphemer dead when he blasphemes. But on this particular occasion, with this particular blasphemer, God said, enough. I will not share my glory with another. And this Herod, who arrogantly dared to raise his fist against God and against his people, is struck down. You ever watch a movie, and there's this bad guy through the whole thing, right? And you just, you just love to hate him. You're just like, me get that guy. And in the end, you really love that last fight scene, right? Like if it's a, you know, Batman or, or some comic book type movie, you know, where there's the hero who's fighting, the, and then they get this last fight scene. And you're just loving it. Every time you're a hero, you just punches that guy. or you're like, yeah, get him, get him, get him. And then there's usually like this, this brief moment where we think the bad guy's going to go free. Right? Because the good guy shows mercy. And then he attacks him one last time and he gets thrown off the building. Ah! And you're like, yes, we got him. That's the way this story ends, right? It's like, there's the bad guy. He's picking on the church. Go get him, God! Right? Guess what? Story doesn't always end that way. Sometimes it does. But sometimes evil continues to prevail, and you're like the psalmist. Like, how long will this go on? God, how long will you let evil prosper? How long will you, will you let the bad guy have his way? 
And sometimes it's not even in this life. But make no mistake, God is still at work. He is glorifying himself even when it seems that evil is, is triumphing. God is still at work. We don't know what circumstances God will use to advance the gospel, to glorify himself, and to do good for us. A year ago, in October of last year, I shared with you a prayer request um, for some missionaries in Cameroon. And I don't like to read a lot when I'm preaching, but I actually want to read for you um, a rather lengthy passage um, from Ben Sinclair. Ben and his wife Rebecca have been church planting missionaries in Cameroon for more than 18 years. And so bear with me as I read some words that he graciously shared with me. Um, Years ago, my family began laboring in prayer for two requests. One, for co-workers, and two, for spiritual revival among the Cameroonian people. God invites us to pray, but we must always remember that God's answers are to be left entirely to His sovereign purposes. In 2015, God called Charles Wesco and his family to Africa. During the Wesco survey trip, they spent some days in our home, and then it was peaceful in Cameroon. Lord knitted our hearts together, and they made the decision to move to Cameroon. During their two years of deputation, unrest broke out in ten regions of Cameroon. As the violence escalated, we began to prayerfully consider moving to one of the peaceful regions of Cameroon. Through, word, through his word and prayer and godly counsel, the Lord confirmed to us and the Wescos that we were to remain preaching the gospel of peace in the tumultuous northern region of Cameroon. Twelve days after the Wesco family removed to Cameroon, this is October of last year, the unthinkable happened. On a routine trip to town, one of the sinners for whom Christ died and to whom the Wescos had come to share the gospel fired around from a shotgun through our car. Charles was mortally wounded, was pronounced dead at the hospital. For some reason, Stephanie, Charles Jr., and I were supernaturally protected. The next day, Stephanie, her eight children, a young lady who came with them, and our entire family piled into our church van with room for just one carry-on per person, and the military escorted us out of the northern region into the peaceful western region. We had no time to say goodbye to the friends and neighbors we had known and loved for so many years. This is not what we had planned. This could not be God's answer to prayer, or could it? On the flight back to the States, I poured out my heart to the Lord. I asked, what are you doing? Aren't we in your will? What are we supposed to be doing? And the Lord put it on my heart to take the testimony of Brother Wesco and challenge churches and schools across the United States. For the next six months, God allowed me to preach nearly a hundred times churches, high schools, colleges from coast to coast, 12 times in Puerto Rico. Countless believers and unbelievers have now heard of the martyrdom of Brother Wesco. For more, more than a dozen Americans have been saved through his testimony. Others have surrendered to missions. 
Since the memorial service, we've been praying for the Lord of the harvest, not just to give us co-workers, but to call 100 missionaries to Cameroon. To, this, to the date of this writing, uh, which would have been about two weeks ago, um, 23 people have surrendered to go to Cameroon and represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. In addition to what is happening in America, over 400 displaced Cameroonians have professed faith in Christ, even amidst the unrest because of the testimony of Charles Wesco. The gospel is making its way across 10 regions which are disturbed, which are at at unrest right now. And we believe that the winds of revival are stirring. And then he concludes with this. Did God hear our prayers? Yes. Is he working in the way that we planned or expected? Absolutely not. But is he working? God providentially works to glorify himself in the advance of his church. Lord, we love you. We are thankful for your word that reminds us that we don't always know best. Or simply put, we in our pride so often think that we know the way it should go. We, we see the outcome of, of Peter as, as good, as right. But when we hear things like, James is dead, we scratch our heads in wonder. Help us, Lord, to be reminded this morning that you're at work, that you're glorifying yourself and your church and through the advance of the gospel, even when we don't fully understand how you are at work. Help us to understand that in our lives, too. Because, Lord, so often we, we look at our situation, we look at our hardships, we look at our difficulties, and we, we just we fail to understand what you are doing. So, Lord, give us the faith to know that you are providentially at work for, for our good and your glory. I want to just give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord. I trust